Good morning. Grace and peace are ours through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that gives us wonderful peace. Amen. This week, this coming week, I'm going to preside over a funeral of a very important, influential man that I knew had gone missing, but I didn't know he had died. And then I went to look for him, and I could not find him, and those that know him better said he'd passed away and asked if I would preside at the funeral. He's very influential. He's helped people for decades. And now he's gone, and he's left a huge hole, and I'd love for you to come this week. Do you want to know his name? Commitment. Commitment has died. 58% of the people that make the biggest promise of their life in America called marriage break it. Many times in the first 10 years. Kids are allowed to join teams and quit in the middle of the season because they just don't like it anymore. People don't even bother to join churches anymore. They don't want to be committed. They want to be tied down. And they certainly don't want to be asked to be part of the volunteer corps Commitment. Party affiliation is at an all-time low. Even the people that are representing the party are defecting. Everybody seems to be like the period of the judges. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Unless you think, in my depressing diatribe I'm by myself, I picked up an article from from the Internet from 2010. Chuck Colson and Catherine Larson, both voices in American Christianity, they, there were some presidential candidates applying for president, the job of president of a Christian college, and they asked this question, what's changed the most in the past 20 years with young people entering college? All the candidates said that young adults today are far less willing to commit to anything. The, now the, the writer says, what, whether we're talking about a career, marriage, or faith, studies have shown that people lack commitment today. In 2008, more than half of the people between ages 20 and 24 had been with their employer less than a year and didn't plan to stay longer than another year. Although the recession has dampened this somewhat, young adults are still floundering when it comes to embracing the thought of having a calling. Marriage especially has suffered. According to U.S. Census, young adults are marrying later than ever while still having monogamous, sexually active, one-on-one relationships. They don't want to commit. In a documentary called Generation Next, it gives some insight into why people want the desire for adventure, freedom, career advancement, and and a prolonged adolescence, which for them seems like it brings great freedom. Lack of commitments hitting religion also. Studies suggest that the iPod generation is choosing which aspects of the faith to adopt, like creating their own personal religious playlist, personalized just to them. The study, the researchers said young people see a world fragmented by place of the, as a fragmented place of choice and freedom that yields little meaning or comfort. They even seem to have lost the language to express commitment to anything besides themselves. A researcher, Robert Bella, calls this ontological individualism. The belief that the individual is the only source of meaning for themselves. Bella saw how this attitude would in time unravel the church and larger society. Since then, we've seen an almost uninterrupted march in America towards self-focus, affecting all of our institutions, but especially crippling church, work, marriage, and family. And then the writer offers, by abandoning commitment, our narcissistic culture has lost the one thing it desperately is looking for, happiness. 
Without commitment, our individual lives will be barren and sterile. Without commitment, our lives will lack meaning and purpose. After all, if nothing's worth dying for, then nothing's worth living for. But with commitment comes the flourishing of society. With commitment comes the the strength of a calling or of marriage or of the church and a strength for our hearts. This thing called commitment is the paradox that Jesus so often shared when he said, come and die with me that you might truly live. That's all the good news I have for you today. That wouldn't be fair, would it? (laughs) It's really not a new thing. While we're alive right now and we observe it and it's it is a growing thing right now in our culture, a lack of commitment. It's not new. It started when Eve said, I can't trust you, God. The devil has taught me that you're looking out for yourself, so I'm going to look out for myself, and I'll eat the fruit after I decide on my own. I'm not committed to you anymore. I'll decide on my own. I don't believe in you anymore. I'll decide on my own what's right and wrong. And her first son had the same attitude toward his brother. Cain killed Abel with a lack of commitment. And Joseph, later in the Genesis, all of his brothers were not committed to family when they tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. And in the period of the judges, just shortly after that in the Bible, chronologically it's later, but everybody does does what is right in their own eyes. And there's Jesus later and his disciples are all abandoning him. And one of his leaders even denied that he knew him. Talk about a lack of commitment, right? It's nothing new. And nobody feels the pain of a lack of commitment more than God himself. And it shows up in how he yearns for us to be committed in personal, private, true, trusting prayer. Did you catch what I was saying? The true prayer of the heart is a sign of commitment. And we... we people, when we see each other fall away from their commitment to us as a group, like family or church or work or marriage, we get shaken and hurt. When does God start hurting? When he sees us stop praying. When we're actually in a secret part of our heart, we no longer want to talk to him from a trusting heart because frankly, we don't trust him. And There are lots of different reasons people fall out of their faith in trusting God, but here's a couple. One of them is we're so enthralled with the world around us. Jesus talked about the parable in the parable of the sower about the thorns that grew up around the the good plant that was planted by the word of God. It's the cares of this world or the attractiveness of not knocking them dead in this life and having a lot of wealth. It so attracts us that the idea of living a dependent prayer life is far, far from us. But more importantly today, what Jesus is getting at is the kind of person that may not be here in this room. Maybe one or two of you have been in this place and you will be in this place in your heart again. But a lot of people that have what Jesus is talking about won't even come to church anymore. They've lost their faith that God is really there and really listening and really willing and able to help because they've seen so much pain and injustice in their own life or in the life of people they love or in the community and it just seems to never get interrupted by the divine being at all to them 
And in their puny mind, which they feel like is so heavily exposed to the ways of the God in the world, they just feel like, God, you're letting way too much evil happen. Way too much pain, way too much injustice to be trusted. And they quit praying because they quit believing. And that's the person that Jesus is talking to. We've all got it somewhere in our heart. And as you listen today, you let God give you medicine to your heart, but then you think about the person that might need this, and you get the iPod cast and you send it to them because we're talking, we're letting Jesus talk. We're amplifying him and his parable of what he says to help people get that back, to get that faith back that they would pray one-on-one with God in true, sincere prayer. Not the outward form prayer when we're all together, but true heart-to-heart walk with God kind of prayer. Now, look at the first verse on page 7 of your folder, or get the Bible out, Luke 18. What does it say? Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them what? That they should always pray and don't give up. And so what I'm telling you today is that Jesus is saying, don't give up on God like we're so prone to do. But he told a parable to help us. Do you know he does that a couple other times? You see it in the, in the Bible. Peter, he says, you've got to forgive your brother 70 times 7. And Peter's like, what, are you kidding me? And he goes, well, I'm going to tell you a parable. And he tells him that parable of the unforgiving servant to help Peter, right? This parable helps us learn to pray. That's the point of the parable. So we're going to study it with that positive in mind. So we're done with the death of commitment. We're going to let God give it back to us, the commitment in prayer. Let's read the, or I'll read the parable to you. He said, verse 2, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out. And the Lord said to his disciples, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not bring God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes back, he's talking about the end of the world, will he find faith on the earth? Remember why I told the parable? That we would learn to always pray and not give up. Let's just meditate on the parable together. And and there are three points that I believe Jesus is giving us. The first one is, you're not that widow. It's a beautiful contrast the widow and the judge, to us and God. The judge cares nothing about God or people. He has no motive based on anything loving, ethical, or altruistic. Nothing. Just simply, he doesn't want her to keep bothering him. He's done with that. He'll give her justice. The widow has nothing to offer the judge. She is the lowest on the scale in their society. Once she loses her husband, she has no economic strength, no legal status. She has nothing to offer the judge to help him with his career, nothing 
to bring in her hand to even pay him. She's just begging on the basis of the thing that he doesn't care about, which is justice. She's just saying on the basis of justice, could you not, representing God, help me against my adversary who's doing something illegal to make my life miserable? Jesus made this whole story up. And God is so different than that judge. Holy, perfect, loving God. And we are so different than that widow because what does he call us? When he says, listen to what the judge says, he says, will not God listen to whom? What does it say there? Chosen ones. Old translations said the elect. And that's a good translation too. That's the word for being chosen from eternity. Ephesians 1 says, God, if you believe in Christ, God picked you from eternity to be one of those who would come to be one of his children by faith in his son. We could add to that, when Christ was on the cross, he was thinking of you by name. And in your lifetime, says later in the book of Ephesians, he engineered the situation, the people you were born to, the land you were born in, the church that you'd be around, the, the Bible that was written, the good news that was preached, the moments not just one, that he keeps coming to you with that grace and forgiveness to wash away your sins and create faith in you. You are his child chosen to have all of this happen for you, which makes you very different than the widow. Why did Jesus tell us this parable this way? Because when we're praying and we're not getting justice or we're seeing the evil go on, one of the thoughts, the lie the, the lie the devil whispers into our heart is, it's because of who you are. You're just a little scum to God. He doesn't really care about you. And Jesus says, will he not listen to the prayer of his chosen ones? Much different than the judge and the widow? Let me try to illustrate this to make it stick. I want this thought that you're God's chosen child to stick in your heart so you'll learn to pray with hope about your problems. I want you to really have hope when you pray to him. Cell phone. If you were to make an appointment with me and we talk things out, we we were there to talk things out and we set aside an hour, I might set this on my desk in my study. It's happened many times. I might set it next to me on my lap. I turn it the volume off so it won't interrupt us that way but you know what happens if the screen is up if you get a call it lights up right you can see out of the peripheral vision and a number comes up now these days i'm getting a lot of those sales calls to s-a-l-e-s sales calls to cell phones so if a number comes up on my phone while we're talking in my study and it says las vegas we both look down at it i don't know it doesn't say who it is I'm going to click the button on the side, turn the screen off, maybe even turn it upside down, and we're going to keep talking because I'm not going to let it interrupt us, right? But if one of my four sons calls, I've got pictures attached to their phone number. Their picture comes up. I see it's their number. They, there two of them are here. They rarely call me unless they really need something. And I'm going to say to you, and it's happened to some of you, that's one of my kids or that's Mary. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt our talk. And I'm going to answer it because that's my son. Do you see the illustration? Forget about me. Who are you when you pray? God says, oh, that's not Las Vegas. That's my son. That's my daughter. 
when that phone in heaven lights up and you say a prayer for justice, Jesus is saying, just because on earth it doesn't come as quickly as you think it should doesn't mean he's not listening. Don't you give up praying. He looks at that and goes, that's my daughter. She's praying for justice. She's not like that widow was to the judge. You see how Jesus is yearning for us to believe that we're loved by the Father, that he would listen to our prayers so we wouldn't stop praying. God loves for us to talk to him in prayer. You're nodding a little bit. That means you get it. I'll go on. Otherwise, I'll keep preaching. You, you just sit there deadpan. Point number two. Your cause is not far from him. What did that judge care about that woman's cause? Zero. He didn't care what that was. He has no regard for God or people. On the flip side, if a human being cries out to the almighty holy God for justice, for the right thing to happen, that strokes a guitar chord in God's heart. You know why? Because he's all about justice. Just read through the prophets. When they came to Israel and said, you're in trouble with God, it's because they were not practicing justice. The poor widow, the poor orphan, or the poor person, or the alien, God was all over them. He got all in their face about that. And he said, because you're not being good with justice in Israel, I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They had other sins too, immorality and not keeping the Sabbath and many other things. But he kept harping on justice in Micah 6, 8. Gerald Ford's favorite verse, he says, God has Israel on trial. And he says, don't you know what I want? I don't want thousands of lambs sacrificed to me. He said, I want you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Justice is in the big three, always. Justice and righteousness and mercy. So when a Christian says, Lord, it's not right. It's not fair. What's going on? And it looks like you're not being heard and you start to not pray anymore. Whoa, God says, that's near to my heart. That cause is important to me. Let me try to illustrate this again to make it stick. I'm a guy. I don't like to go shopping. If I find out there's a sale or it's Black Friday, I want to go in and get that one thing and get out. Right? I'm a guy. So if you, guy or gal, want to talk to me about shopping, it's not near to my heart. I'm going to glaze over. Right? But talk to me about football or hunting or something like that, right? Maybe about a Bible verse. And man, you're strumming the chord of my heart, right? Same for you. You've got things that are, you're not passionate about right? But there's some things, they just, just hear the thought of it, and you get excited, right? That's God. You talk about justice, and you pray to him, he's not going, oh, there she is again. She's complaining that it's not fair. He knows you're talking to him about that problem. He wants to hear about, and by the way, I've been talking about unfair and just, when you're suffering like physical illness or financial hardship, and it kind of just came on you, or it's relationship issues in a family, and it just comes on you, it feels unfair, right? I've been trying so hard to be good, and you threw this health problem at me. What's the deal, God? Other people don't have it. Why do I have it? So it's still, he loves to hear you talk to him and pray to him. He doesn't want you to give up. That's why he told the parable. And the third part is probably the hardest to preach. 
It's going to come quickly. You're not far from His help. I've said that to people before, and they said, well, you better hurry up because He's already late. <laughs> when you're suffering, when I'm suffering, it feels like forever. It feels like a tunnel that has no light at the end of it. It feels already like it's been too long. Because in the, in the law, the law of God's written in our heart, there's a sense that there should never be any injustice for one second or one death or one murder or anything, right? And when it's happening to us, it feels so unfair. With that as a thought, in Revelation, there's even a vision of heaven where John sees heaven and the souls of those that were unfairly beheaded for Christ. And you know what it says in the vision that they're singing? They're under the altar of God, the, the, the souls of the ones beheaded, which was unfair, saying, How long before you bring justice and avenge our blood on the face of the planet? Does God not know that our sense of justice is damaged when we have to endure pain and suffering at the hands of others in this world? Oh, yeah, he knows. And he says it all through Revelation. He says, I'm coming soon. And here Jesus says, will God not give you justice and quickly? I'm just going to say, remember, it's the hardest thing to preach here. From God's perspective, it's right on time. And you will know how quickly it was once you experience it. The, the answer to the prayer, the solution to the problem, the ship coming in or stepping into heaven when all pain and suffering are gone. You will say, oh, that came quick enough. It came quickly. But if, while you're praying, you're going, God, you're taking way too long. And it's way too long, and therefore I don't believe in you, so I'm not going to pray anymore. He goes, that's a lack of commitment that I don't want you to have. So he told us the parable. God will bring it quickly. The judge cut his own suffering short so he could get her out of his courtroom, according to the make-believe story, right? God will, who loves you and is close to your cause, bring justice quicker than you think. And now, think about a few Old Testament people very quickly with me. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers when he had been told he would someday be the one they bowed down to. How many years between the dream, selling him, Potiphar's wife lying about him, stuck in prison in, in Egypt, finally becoming, interpreting the dreams of the baker and the butler, and finally becoming leader, and seven years were good and seven years were bad. You add all of that up. When his brothers finally come bow down looking for grain, how many years? Twenty plus years and when they bowed down what did joseph say do not be mad at yourselves you meant to harm me but god meant it for good that i might save millions of lives through the the grain we saved up and that i might save a remnant for israel and we know that brought us a savior what i'm trying to tell you is joseph would say with god it came quickly enough job Remember, lost everything. The neat thing about Job, as mad as he got at God, as hurt and deflated and depressed as anyone would be, he never stopped praying. Even though his prayer was, what in the world is going on up there? I want my day in court with you, God. He never gave up. He kept praying. And when it came, the deliverance, Job was still there with God. 
to speak his truth in love, and he said it came soon enough, right? While he was in the middle of it, though, he clung to the promise of the resurrection. Remember when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he'll stand upon the earth? He clung to a word, not a circumstance. His circumstances gave him no reason to believe in God at all or pray to him. And when you and I get down and further down and further down as things happen to us, we are showing that we think circumstances are the way that God communicates with us. It could be that God in heaven is talking to the devil saying, watch, I'm going to let you do things to him or her, but he won't give up his faith because it's not the circumstances that he trusts in. It's my love through my word of the gospel like Job. It's easy for me to preach this. Oh, man, is it hard for me to practice it. Oh, by the way, I can't, I can't leave an illustration that I shared in first service that I wanted to share now. I'm just going to grab it. It's about part three where it's, he'll come quickly. If you learn that from God's perspective, things are shorter than they really are, and that you're not supposed to live in the long vision of your life, but in day-to-day, like Jesus said, if you'll learn, then the quickly will come quick enough for you. And here's the example. When Mary and I were just married a few months, we left for me to study for the ministry and went to Minnesota. But we went up there first to find an apartment. My parents went with us. To save money, we shared a hotel room, two queen-size beds. It's 1130 at night. My sister, baby sister, five years younger than me, she went from Dallas to Tyler, Texas to start school as a dental hygienist. She had to go there for three years. She was out of her element. Her parents were out of town. She was in her dorm room, and she was sad and scared and didn't want to be in Tyler, Texas. I'm asleep when the phone rings there are no cell phones you know the hotel phone loud obnoxious ring my sister got the number called my parents wanted to talk to them in minnesota about not wanting to be in tyler and would they give her permission to quit before she ever got started and get back to dallas and we're all listening to this because we all got woke up and we're all in the hotel room and my dad's talking to her on the phone and he's saying very wise thing honey i love you but the next thing was even wiser he said, we've already paid for your tuition. We've paid for the apartment. We've got it. We're going to have to pay throughout at least a semester. You don't have to think about staying there for three years. Just plan on staying there till Christmas. Let's cut it down to size, and then you can come home at Christmas. And she could come home every weekend anyway, but you can move home, and you can start over somewhere else. And she, that was enough for her to get through the night. When they hung up the phone, I said, She's moving to Tyler. I'm moving to Siberia. (laughs) And my mom said, yeah, but you have your wife with you. I said, yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) You cut life down to size. People will say, I'm not going to stay in this marriage 10 more years. God, you don't even know if you're going to be alive 10 more years. You get all that pain and sorrow. You're trying just one more day. Right. As we work through this and we work out it, we pray to God and we don't give up and we don't get uncommitted right? That's what Jesus is teaching us. Stop trying to play God and just live out today. It'll come quickly and keep praying. Okay, what's it look like if you answer Jesus' challenge? Here's his challenge. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What a searching question. What a great preacher to leave us with that. That's how he ends the whole story. Will I find faith? Will I find people that trust me enough I love you. You're my chosen child. Your cause is not far from me. I will answer you quickly. Will he find people that trust his word and not their circumstances? When you hear that, 
and you're alive spiritually, you know what you're saying? You're saying something like this. I want to be that person that you find faith in. I know that, that a lot of times I'm that other person, right? There's a guy like us in the Gospels. Mark chapter 9, he's got a son that he's been praying that God would get rid of the demon over and over and over again. And his, Jesus' disciples are with him, but Jesus isn't there. And they could not cast the demon out. So now, praying to God, getting the disciples, nothing's working and it's been going on for years. The demon convulses his son, throws him into the water to drown him, throws him into a fire to burn him up, and he, and he cannot get rid of this. And Jesus walks up and says, what's going on? What's the commotion? They go, my, the man says, my son, he's got this demon. He does all these terrible things to him. Can, he says, if you can, can, can you help me? And Jesus says, if I can... Everything's possible for anyone who would believe in me. And the man goes like this. This is you and me. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Isn't that the way you listen to this gut parable and this sermon on prayer? I do believe enough to keep praying to you, but help me with my lack of faith. Help me pray more. We batted this parable around in our Connect group this week. And one of the gals in the study said when she was a young woman, her grandfather died, even though she had prayed ardently that he would live. And her grandmother said to her, you can be mad at God, but don't stop talking to him. Isn't that a beautiful application of what Jesus is saying? Job never stopped talking to him. Joseph never stopped talking to him. David never stopped talking to him. Let's don't stop talking to him either. So when Jesus comes back, he'll find faith. And we ask God to help us. Let's pray. Now, God, we are sometimes so bad at believing in you enough to keep praying with hope. But we've heard today that we're your special child, that our cause is not far from you, and that you will answer quickly. So we're back on track. Help us to be one with you and to walk with you in our lives and to truly pray. If there's someone we know right now that you want us to share this message with. Help us to have the courage and the memory to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.